0: Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host today, Susan Deniker from Steptoe & Johnson PLLC. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, We are also fortunate to have the opportunity to dial in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are going to be chatting with a member from Washington State. Joining us on the program is Kellen Haid, partner at Miller National Seattle. Today, he will share his insights on President Biden's recent executive order on non-competition agreements and the potential impact it has on employers. He recently wrote an article for Miller Nash on this executive order. So we look forward to delving further into this topic. Kellen, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to have you today. How are you doing?
1: Hey, Susan. I, I'm great. It's a sunny day in Seattle, which you know is a rarity. Don't tell anyone. So I have no complaints.
0: Well, I have a complaint because it's not sunny where I am today, So, um, (laughs) but I think that you guys deserve it in Seattle. If it's sunny in Seattle, that means that everybody's really going to enjoy this podcast because you're talking about something that a lot of employers and a lot of our clients are talking about, and that is we got an executive order from the Biden administration on non-competition agreements. It's executive order 14036. So, Kellen, what in the world is this?
1: Yeah, well, it's the executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. Totally self-explanatory, right?
0: Exactly. I, d- I think I think we're done here. I think all we're right, done
1: I'm, here. I'm going outside. <laughs> no. Uh, so it was signed on July 9th, and it actually includes about six dozen different initiatives totally all over the board. Things like corporate consolidation, the agricultural supply chain, broadband internet access, prescription drug prices, all these things that are kind of strange bedfellows. But they're all strung together or attempted to be strung together with this red thread of promoting competition in the economy. Uh, and employee mobility is, is one of the issues that the administration sees as affecting competition in the labor market. And so the executive order specifically addresses, quote, agreements that may unduly limit workers' ability to change jobs, which we are interpreting as non-competes, essentially. And it, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, it was passed on July 9th, but it's not a totally new idea you know, there have been efforts at the federal level to regulate these types of agreements for, for many years. I think most recently, every year since 2015, which also coincided with kind of an increased use of non-competes in, you can say, untraditional ways. And it's my turn to ask you a question, Susan. What was your first job?
0: Oh, I worked, well, I was a babysitter first, but then my first real wage job was working in a convenience store and I'm not going to date myself, but I might have rented VHS videos for those exciting Friday and Saturday nights in a small town.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Well, I also grew up in a small town. My first job was McDonald's. And so I can really relate with this example of kind of the prevalence of these untraditional non-competes. And it's the Jimmy John's example, where Jimmy John's made all their employees, including hourly workers, including 16-year-olds, sign a non-compete that prevented them from working for any sandwich place within two miles of a jimmy john's shop anywhere in the united states for two years and so that kind of sparked a lot of public outcry got a lot of media attention and it really i think kind of brought to the forefront this issue of non-competes and what they are when really for the most part they were kind of relegated for executives and salespeople not necessarily you know a lot of public interest and so it started to garner a legislative interest but you know, to date, the congressional efforts have stalled. So we kind of see this executive order as President Biden's end run around the failure of Congress to act. But it does include many of those same initiatives that Congress has been trying to pass.
0: Well, Kellen, I'm glad you raised that because it's something that's been on everybody's mind. We get an executive order on this because I think the administration is frustrated with the lack of legislation on this. But Tell us how this fits in. It's not federal legislation. It's not obviously state legislation, which typically governs these types of contractual relationships. What does this mean for employers that are trying to figure out? I've got an executive order from the president on this topic. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between an executive order and a law.
1: Yeah, so an executive order can have the force of law, but what's interesting is this one doesn't. It's very careful. And so, you know, if you're an employer, what you're looking at this, what am I supposed to do? In the short term, it really doesn't affect you. I guess that's the good news. You know, the executive order doesn't impose any rules, doesn't impose any limitations on non-competes. Instead, what it does is encourage the Federal Trade Commission to develop regulations to curtail the use of non-compete clauses and and other agreements that restrict employees moving from job to job. So assuming the FTC is encouraged to do anything, It'll have to go through that rulemaking process, and you put me on the spot, Susan. It's been a while since I've taken administrative law in law school, but I do remember that you know that requires proposed rules that are publicized, the public gets a chance to comment on those, and there's a lot of other procedural kind of prerequisites before a regulation could have the force of law, would actually have the force of law. And so, timing-wise, I feel that it could take months, perhaps even years before we see something, I would be shocked if we see something before the first of next year.
0: Well, Kellen, thanks for letting me put you on the spot. I'll just give you a heads up. At the end, we're going to ask you to sing how a bill becomes a law from Schoolhouse Rock, so we can all be up to speed on our legislative rules here. But on a more serious note, talk to us a little bit here. So you're right. This is aspirational, right, in nature of the Biden administration saying, this is kind of how we want things to be, but it doesn't have the force of law in terms of having penalty provisions, right, or any type of jurisdiction to bring some type of civil action. So, you know, what are the potential benefits and risks to employers that are presented by this executive order and just overall federal regulation of restrictive covenants, which are typically, right, contractual law, which we normally see governed on a state level?
1: Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And just sidebar, if you make me sing, I will guarantee you, you will have several fewer listeners for the next podcast. Than otherwise. But yeah, you know, you touched on that, Susan. I I think that one of the benefits is because you're working with currently a patchwork of state laws, one of the benefits I think could be uniformity. Right now, these laws can vary wildly from state to state. California, as many people know, bans non-competes altogether. Other states impose you know certain limitations on them depending on salary and timing and, and those types of things. And you know, in Washington, we just recently enacted recently. Time has kind of been a blur the past couple of years, but starting in 2020, we enacted a law where you had to have the employee, you had to give notice of the non-compete, have to give notice of the non-compete before they start working and they have to sign it before they start working for it to be enforceable. In Alabama, it's literally just the opposite. If the employee signs the non-compete before they are actually on the payroll, it may not be enforceable. So for regional and national employers, I mean, you can imagine that this kind of is administrative nightmare. You're trying to keep up to date on these laws. They change over time. And even frankly, right now with remote work, even a local employer who was a local employer two years ago may have employees spread all across the country. So now you're going to have to keep up to date on that. And it it creates an uncertainty about how the court's going to treat that. So that's the benefit, I think, is uniformity. Unfortunately, right, the flip side of uniformity is really kind of questioning whether one size can fit all in this circumstance. So just for example, several states have enacted laws that restrict non-competes for quote-unquote low-wage earners, but what the heck does that mean, right? In in Washington, that means $101,000 a year. Illinois is 75, other states are lower, and I think that those differences really reflect the different economies of those states, the industries, and the markets, and, you know, if you're reduced to kind of the least common denominator approach, which would be the federal level, Really, question whether or not, for some markets, whether a a non compete would practically be effective. And so that's probably the more subtle risk of federal regulation. Certainly, some of the more overt risks. The FTC could go the California route, just ban non competes altogether. They can impose limitations on salary and other characteristics of the job, limitations on the length or the scope of the non compete. And I, I think the biggest probably doomsday scenario is that the FTC could try to, you know, ban non-competes even retroactively. So even if you have a non-compete that's enforceable today, it may not be enforceable after the FTC acts. And I don't know about you, Susan, I think there's some legal challenges to that. And also, you know, I quite frankly, wouldn't be surprised to see a challenge to the FTC's authority to do anything on non-competes, which unfortunately just adds to the uncertainty that employers get to grapple with here.
0: It feels like lawyers were always saying, this is a gray area, or this is, there's uncertainty here. I know clients hate to hear that. And I know something that you and I both do is draft non-competes for employers who are looking to protect their businesses and their proprietary information. So. Kellen, tell us, what's your advice for employers that are looking to protect their business from these threats, but are trying to balance what they're seeing out of this executive order and looking at what various states are doing with legislation? What are some best practices here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's a critical question. And we are, yeah, clients hate, it depends. But I think there are some concrete steps we can take. And, you know, the first thing that I do when I sit down with my clients in this area is we kind of sit down and we take an inventory about, you know hey what, what are you worried about from a competitive standpoint and you know is it the relationship with your customers is it your talent base keeping that stable is it your vendor contracts, your confidential information your strategy your processes i mean w- what is it that you're trying to protect through the use of a non-compete and the benefit or the good news is that oftentimes more often than not we can protect through contracts we can protect those interests through contracts that are just not non-competes. They're a different type of restrictive covenant. And the even better news is these other types of restrictive covenants, generally speaking, don't face the same you know, skepticism and scrutiny from courts that non-competes do, and so they're more likely to be enforced. So one really powerful kind of alternative to a non-compete is a non-solicitation agreement. And they, you know, in general, protect or prevent your former employee from contacting your customers and sometimes even your, your employees. And another benefit to the non-solicitations is there in Washington, this is true. And in other states, they are exempted or removed from the kind of the, the statutes that are imposing limitations on non-competes because they're seen as different. And I think generally courts recognize customer relationships and employee relationships as, as important things that we want to protect. The one thing I would say about non-solicitation agreements is they they really must be non-solicitation agreements to reap the benefits. I had a client, a very well-meaning client, who we talked and they heard my advice and they took it quite literally. And so they just took their form, non-compete, struck out the the header that said non-competition provision. It just said non-solicitation provision. Everything else remained the same. I mean, it's still a non-compete. So you do really want to make sure that your non-solicitation is a non-solicitation that it is narrowly tailored to protect those customer or employee relationships. Otherwise it might be treated as a non-compete and then you've kind of lost the benefit of that.
0: Kellen, you were discussing the importance and the role that non-solicitation agreements can play and ways employers can use that. But what about other types of agreements where employees are required not to disclose information besides client lists or customer lists that they've learned during their employment?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I I think you touched on, I mean, a non-disclosure agreement is a great alternative to to using a non-compete. And that's, I think it supplements the desire to keep your proprietary information out of the hands of a competitor, which people sometimes use non-competes for. We can accomplish that with a non-disclosure agreement. I, I mean, I think they're generally standard nowadays. My, my advice to clients though on the non-disclosure is to really think carefully about how we're describing what constitutes the quote-unquote confidential information. You really wanna be intentional about that and think through what it is you wanna protect. I think generally more specificity is better, but not always, so that's just something you're gonna to wanna to think about. And then, you know, I guess the, the last agreement that I'll talk about and I explore with the clients is an invention assignment agreement and what that says is basically anything that the employee creates or invents or develops while they're employed by you while they're paid by you is your property is the employer's property and so it prevents the employee from you know asserting that they have ownership in that property and take it and use it for the benefit of a competitor. Now that's not appropriate for all employers and it's not necessarily even an issue that comes up all that often but when, when it does it usually means that the property is pretty valuable uh, and there's big dollars at stake. And so an invention and assignment agreement is really good, cheap insurance. Oh, and, you know, we're talking about agreements, one caution, I guess, that I'll throw out there is if you're thinking about implementing these agreements for existing employees, you really want to be careful about whether it's supported by consideration. And so in some states, for example, you're going to need to pay existing employees a bonus or give them a promotion or a raise or some kind of benefit in exchange for them agreeing mid-employment to sign on to a a non-solicitation or non-disclosure. That's not not true in every state, so it's just something you're going to want to be aware of.
0: Those are really excellent suggestions, Kellen. So let me look at this for a minute through a different lens, because sometimes our clients don't want to go down the contractual route for lots of reasons. They're worried that it interferes with the at-will employment relationship. It's sometimes logistically difficult to get a lot of people in big workforces to execute contracts you may have pushback for whatever reason are there alternatives that aren't contractual based that can help employers protect proprietary information in other confidential information important to their businesses
1: yeah absolutely and, that, and that's a really good point most of the federal government and almost all states if not every state has statutes and laws that protect trade secrets and like you mentioned, those don't require contractual rights. So no matter whether you have a contract with your employee, they are bound by the duties not to use or disclose what qualifies as a trade secret under the law. So one of the things we do regularly is we work with, with clients to audit their business. And the first thing we're looking at is like, what is, what are what are your trade secrets? And, you know, more often than not, it's, it's really interesting to me. We'll sit down with the client, kind of go through this, and they will discover you know, at through this process that, oh, there, there are actually things that are valuable that maybe weren't necessarily top of mind, but are trade secrets and, and we wanna protect. So that's number one, figure out you know, what are our trade secrets. Number two is ensuring that they stay secret, right? It's inherent in the name. And it when a trade secret becomes public or loses its secrecy, it's no longer protected. So one of the things employers want to do if you wanna really rely on this statutory protection is create policies that are you know intended and help ensure that confidential information is not made public. So that's everything from you know digital access. What are your what are your credentialing systems like? Does every employee get access to everything on your server or is it divided by type and, and job category? Bring your own device policies can be a nightmare. And then you add all the remote work, right? People are now at their home, maybe using a personal computer. They're printing out perhaps sensitive documents and they're now chilling in the kitchen. So, you know, all these things, you wanna have policies to address them to make sure that we're doing our best to keep these things secret. A Couple other things you wanna do is make sure that vendors, contractors, and even uh, prospective employees, when you're bringing them in to interview, they may need to sign non-disclosure agreements to make sure that they understand they're not allowed to broadcast anything they can tell them. And then also, you know, training program for everybody, at least, I recommend at least once a year on all these policies, and especially especially for frontline managers. I mean, they're, they're the employer's best line of defense and probably the people who are most often enforcing these policies. So making sure that they understand the importance of what we're trying to do, and then also how they can protect the business.
0: Those are a lot of really interesting options. Sometimes we look at things singularly, right? In terms of non-competes, we get an idea, but Kellen, you've raised a lot of really interesting options I think for employers to consider. So let me ask you this before we wrap up. For our clients and our employers that are out there that already have non-competes in place with their employees, what should they be doing as they look at this new executive order out there and this pronouncement of what the Biden administration thinks should be the policy as it looks to encourage employee mobility in the workforce, what should employers be doing now with their current non-competes?
1: Yeah, I mean, non-competes aren't dead yet. It's the prevailing, I think, restrictive covenant, and they still have a use. So, you know, I think the best tip is that employers should periodically review them in light of the changing laws in the states where they do business. And, you know, I think probably one of the biggest issues that I see when, not, not ones I draft or Susan drafts, I'm sure, but other forms on the internet that employers will sometimes find the non-compete is just incredibly, incredibly broad. And, and that made sense to some extent in years past because states had, you know, blue pencil rules and they could reform the contract so that it would just whittle down. And there really wasn't any consequence for the employer of, of trying, you know, taking your swing and get everything you want and then just wait for the court to change it. But that attitude I think, has started to change recently. We're starting to see a lot more courts are calling it the quote unquote janitor rule, which says, you know, if we're looking at this non-compete and it prevents, you know, the employee from going over to a competitor and even working as a janitor, that's overbroad. And for those types of agreements, courts are not even bothering to reform them. They're just saying this is ridiculous. We're not going to enforce it. So really review the form of your non-compete. And if you are a a regional or national employer, or you have employees in more than one state, I would suggest that you might want to have different forms of the non-compete that are really tailored to the state. And then also, you know, try to tailor them as much as possible to the actual job. So, you know, make distinctions between rather than just working for a competitor, you know, write something or draft it in a way that the employee can't work for a competitor on a similar product or similar project that they were working on for you, or maybe for salespeople, it's often fine. You can sell competing products, but just not in this industry that you were working in before. So I I think the the narrower that the non-compete or existing non-compete is, the less likely it'll come under fire, you know, irrespective of what the FTC does.
0: Kellen, thank you. These are all really excellent and helpful tips. Thanks for helping us to kind of distill what is a really complex issue muddied a little bit more by this most recent executive order and helping us to gain some perspective on it, making it a little simpler for employers to get their arms around some options with regard to this, some traps that they want to avoid, and some really good recommendations for how they can protect their proprietary information of their businesses. Kellen, really appreciate this very interesting discussion. We're disappointed that you didn't sing on today's podcast, but I think that that just means that on the next podcast, you'll guarantee us some really wonderful legal song to help teach us a lesson about whether it's how a bill becomes a law or what executive orders mean. We will look forward to that and hope that you'll join us for that.
1: Now that's on the extended cut. <laughs>
0: Well, our listeners, I'm sure, will be waiting with great anticipation for the extended cut of this podcast. If you'd like to connect with Kellen or find out what his singing voice is really like, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. Also, search the ELA website at ela.law, where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker, thanks so much for listening.